Many believe the first video game to have been a missile simulator created by Thomas T. Goldsmith Jr. and Essel Ray Mann on a cathode ray tube in 1947. It was inspired by radar displays from World War II. So, seriously Infinity Ward, we've been playing World War II shooters for 62 years now. Give it up already. This is Big Red Ocean. Game on Network, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that doesn't share its herbs and uses up all of your ammunition. As ever, I'm your unassailable host, Sinan Kubber, staff writer and associate editor for the Game Reviews, and joining me in the pod, as always, is TGR Previews Director Joseph Delia, the man who put the uh into Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles and my life as uh, Dark Lord. <sighs> so, Joe... <laughs> That was just, uh, I don't know why I did that one, that's stupid. Anyway, Joe, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a fantastic weekend here in Blighty, plenty of sunshine. How's it been for you in New York City? I nearly melted yesterday, to be totally honest with you. I went wow. out and took the girlfriend out for the day, and it was ridiculous. And I wore a sweatshirt, which was probably not the smartest choice I've made this weekend. But, uh, <laughs> I was kind of hoping nice. just for once you, you'd kind of say, oh, it's been kind of miserable here in, in no. New York. No. <laughs> oh, well. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, the podcast comes out on a Monday, but hopefully we can keep the sunshine of the weekend going with some bright, sunshiny guests. So uh, first up, it's Jennifer Allen, who writes for PlayTM, Xbox Game Zone, and The Portable Gamer. And uh, Jennifer's not only the first woman to appear on Big Red Potion, but also the first person heading from the great country of Wales to do so, which is about time on both counts. So, <laughs> uh, Jennifer, welcome to Big Red Potion. Thanks. Pleased to be a part of it. Oh, oh fantastic. And... Uh, I know, just talking to you beforehand, it's not been quite as sunny for you in, in South Wales. <laughs> no, it's not bad, but it's nowhere near as warm as I'd like. Uh, <laughs> so I'm quite envious of you. <laughs> yeah, the, one, the one kind of down point about Wales, it don't really tend to get the sun. No, but... <laughs> it rains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a bit. <laughs> uh, it certainly doesn't rain that much uh, where our second guest is, which is uh, in Florida, for Shane Hinton who is a writer and, of course, a podcaster, part of the deep-thinking Triforce behind the First Wall Rebate podcast, which has been one of the major influences on this podcast. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome you onto Big Red Potion, Shane. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be here. I really enjoy the show. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, and uh, Well, I expect it's also melting where you are in Florida. Oh, as always, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, we tend to get a little bit too much of the sunshine down here. It's probably why just about everyone I know has had some kind of bout with skin cancer. I think. So, <laughs> all got to go for our screenings once every every year. Or so, so. <laughs> no, that's moasting. That is officially moaning and boasting at the same time. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I'm not I having just... that. <laughs> um, so. This week we're going to turn the clock back and then bring it right back to the now because we're going to be talking about how games age. Uh, many believe that the first video game was invented in 1947, uh, but most people look back to Nolan Bushell's Pong as the game that started it all back in 1972, making gaming probably the youngest of the major entertainment mediums. It's also the one that's been evolving the fastest because of the speed of technological advancement, constantly becoming a very different beast in the space of a few years. 
Because of this, we wanted to take a look at gaming's history, consider the, some of the classic video games from generations past, and look at how they've aged, how the changing landscape of gaming has affected our judgment of them. So, to start that all off, I kinda, what I wanted to do is get some of our guest takes on what have been the major important shifts in gaming, and which ones they feel have been the most significant for evolving the medium. So, I'll go to Jennifer first. Jennifer, what do you think has been the most important shift for gaming in its history? The most important, there's so many. There are. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one that's definitely more recent, but with the focus on online gaming, is a huge thing, I'd say, now. Right. Sort of, you know, a few years back when everybody would just be playing on their own in their bedrooms or in, in front of a TV, you know, just on their own, and now you can communicate with the entire world with games. Right. So I'd say that's quite a large factor with it all. Uh, but there really are so many. I mean, just the graphical changes alone are huge. Yeah. All the changes. Every single generation seems to have this huge leap in graphics, and it's yeah, it's crazy. It seems to be every single time somebody says, "Oh, it can't get any better than this." Oh, look, it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of are kind of uh, making ourselves out to be fools as soon as we say that kind of statement. <laughs> but... I know I've done it plenty of times. <laughs> um... But yeah, so I, I mean, I, I put down in my notes the the whole online thing. It's kind of come in the sixth generation, really, like the sort of Dreamcast um, and the PlayStation Two and the Xbox and and MMORPGs as well, which have yeah, definitely. Well, got... with World of Warcraft, with last week's podcast, yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't like Nazi Germany in any way. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that, Jeff? <laughs> um, how about you, Shane? What, what's been the, the biggest one for you? Well, you know, we talked on a recent episode of, of First World Rebate about um, the shift between, like, 2D and 3D. is obviously kind of one that everybody points to, but, but one that I maybe, like, like to think about more is um, the shift that I noticed myself um, in the 80s, perhaps, when I was kind of coming up on Sierra Adventure Games um, between... Um, interacting with worlds through text and interacting with worlds through kind of graphical representation is, is one that I, I like to ponder or perhaps because I've, I'm involved in, in, you know, textual mediums and a lot, a lot of what I do. But, um, at the same time, I, I do think it's interesting that the, to look at, you know, just as that specific example of these Sierra adventure games, to look at kind of, um, the way that, that the game changes between say like King's quest one, where in, you're interacting with this this space entirely through um, your your linguistic skills, and then maybe King's Quest. I think four or five was where they introduced the uh, the point and click adventure mechanics, right? Or adopted those. Anyway. So I, I think that's that for me is is a really interesting an interesting shift that that has um, really you know reemerged in my consciousness of late as I'm starting to look at all these interactive fictions becoming kind of a, a, a vibrant artistic medium again you know that's a really that's a really um different one that's one I wasn't expecting I mean I know Jennifer you've just played um Wallace and Gromit on, on yeah. from Telltales and kind of shows how far the point and click adventures come that was still it's still relevant uh you know on the major system um yeah but what kind of what you're relating to Shane is kind of saying it's almost like that was the instigator for narrative evolution really in gaming and, mm. and interactivity to some extent um, yeah i think that that would be a fair way to summarize that absolutely <laughs> uh how about you joe 
I think uh, for me, the CD-ROM drive was such a huge jump in games, not just because you could fit more stuff on in the game, but also because of the new ways that it opened up um, presentation aspects of games. I mean, the, if you look at the Sega CD, um, while it may not have had the most quality games of any of the consoles, it definitely opened up new doors as far as um, bringing a Hollywood-style presentation, bringing actors into gaming, bringing... Uh, while the interactivity was limited, bringing all these production values into gaming that they never games never had before because they were too simplistic. And um, if you even look at something like Myst, the way that kind of changed the adventure genre and how it opened up so many new doors for developers to put um, these things into their games that would never have been possible on cartridges or on discs. So I think that um, not only did it begin the shift towards making games seem like Hollywood productions, but it also began like the pretty much one of the biggest generation jumps ever in gaming. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it was about that that time of that shift, too, that we started to get, like, uh, what's it, uh, Redbook Audio, right, included in, right. in certain games because of the extra space on the drives and everything. Yeah, that's uh, that absolutely is, is, is um, one thing I would point to. And it's curious because I think we're seeing now, you know, with the, the possible shift in the near future to uh, everything being digitally distributed, um, in what ways are designers, you know, going to work with um, perhaps, uh, you know, the freedom to use up an entire external hard drive in a, in a downloadable game? I mean, um, it's interesting. The CD was probably the biggest jump, you know, from technologies that we've seen, I, I guess, from the three and a half uh, floppy to the CD was, was the progression there, you know, or the cartridge on the console side. But, uh, I think marketing's played a huge factor too. I mean, I remember when I used to play on sort of Commodore 64 years ago, it'd be seen as a really weird thing to do. Why would you want to play on these games? And now everybody I know has got a PlayStation or an Xbox, and it's seen as quite normal to be playing games, really. It's just seen as a progression of you, know, you watch TV, you play a game, see a film, and then you play the game of a film, which is usually awful, but they still play it. Um, just things like that, really. I mean, Sony did a huge amount with suddenly making with the marketing to make it cool to have a PlayStation. Definitely. I mean, it, and that all kind of relates to what you to what um, Shane and Joe are saying about you know getting that cinematic experience. And again, you know, the, the 3D shift is huge for that um, because you know to make a game look like a movie just makes it much more relatable. Whereas they look like these really unfamiliar things, you know, in the 80s and 90s that didn't really relate to anything else, um, you know, in entertainment. Whereas now if you're playing something like Halo 3, it looks like a big budget movie. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, for me, I don't know. I'm, I want, if I want to be uh, different, I'd say the narrative shift with first person shooters, just because that's being different. But I don't think I really believe that one, uh, to be honest. I don't see that as a huge shift in gaming. I'd, I'd say we're in the middle of, probably the biggest one actually which is the casual shift um mm. like you just the wii is taking gaming in a and end the ds in a, in a whole new direction and you know we're seeing games which we aren't even sure we can classify as games like personal trainer cooking and brain training and um, i think that's really interesting that we could be in the midst of something which might make gaming something completely unfamiliar in, in 10 years time definitely not sure if it's a good thing, but I might just be a bit biased and set in my ways of what I expect of a game. But it definitely seems to be getting more popular. 
I, I think that's kind of the, the, um, <laughs> what everyone kind of who's yeah. used to the game it kind of feels deep down like oh it's great that we've got this expanded audience grumble grumble <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> desperately trying not to be snobby but going but I quite like it being my own little niche thing that everyone thinks a bit weird <laughs> You know, one of the one of the nice things about what's going on now with the casual games, though, is that with these downloadable games and, and because of the kind of space constrictions of all that, one thing that, you know, I do notice is that there's a lot of, of, of new opportunities for very hardcore games in the style of those that we might have played on the uh, NES or Super Nintendo or, or Master System or Genesis or whatever, you know, because simply of the of the of the fact that these many of these casual games are built, um, you know, so, so tightly constrained. Um, and so as were those games, I mean, obviously like Xbox live arcade and, and, uh, PlayStation network are full up of, of either retro remakes or like, like the one, uh, Aegis wing on Xbox live arcade. That's a proper, you know, side scrolling shooter. That's, that's completely new. And as of 2007 or, or whenever it was released. Sure. I mean, Another honest shift that's been coming is the, the indie shift. I mean, we, independent games really never had that much of a chance unless a big publisher swept them up early on. But now, I mean, there's just so many opportunities for those games to get out there that we're going to be start seeing a lot of these really weird games like The Path almost that came out a couple of weeks ago. That's a really weird, strange game that would never have had a chance a couple of years ago to, to get distributed, but now it's possible. Mm-hmm. So that's really great. I think also stuff like the iPhone with its app store, the amount of weird games that are starting to appear on there, but it's really good to see because it's starting to get people noticed because they've got another system they can develop on quite cheaply mm-hmm. rather than having to have sort of debug consoles and things like that for the PlayStation. They just need a Mac, basically. Sure. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, and speaking of the iPhone, one, one game that you didn't mention uh, in your intro that I have downloaded a, a version of is is a space war from like 1967 or whenever it was. Um, and so there again, it's like this, you know, this brand new technology is providing us these inroads to, um, to the history of gaming, which is something that you kind of alluded to, I think in, in your intro a little bit. So. Well, I know you just covered on, um, I think it was episode 19 Wolfenstein on the iPhone as well, mm. um, yeah. which is really interesting to kind of, that's a really hardcore, you know, game from the past, which had to be brought on um, hardcore. I don't know if it's hardcore, but, um, Certainly one that was only traditional gamers would have really known about at the time. And um, to have it come on the iPhone is a really weird thought for me. Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, with that, I mean, we, we talk about the history of games and how uh, it is aged. Games have aged far more than other... I'm sorry, let me start over. Let me just... Blech. Okay. Um, so with that, we talk about how games have aged over the past couple of years. I mean, it, gaming has been vastly different from books and films and TVs and music, where, I mean, all those entertainment forms, essentially, they're the same now as they were 50 years ago. I mean, look at movies, and, I mean, there's still, you know, a flat 2D experience that you're seeing on screen. They're trying to bring 3D into it now, but it's it's pretty much the same as it was in the 50s with the stupid glasses. Um, <laughs> but, like, I mean, you're still watching movies the same way. You're still listening to music the same way, even though they're distributed differently now. Books are still the same, pretty much, except that you can get them on a little uh, portable reader now. Um, but gaming has had these shifts every five or six years where it's becoming they're becoming totally different than they were a couple of years ago. And all of these new ideas are coming into gaming that are completely changing the way we look at stuff. So with that, I mean, how do you guys think that like gaming has aged differently than than TV, books, movies, uh, film? Uh, how um, how are these technological differences affected the way that we play games over the past couple of years? 
would have thought the most obvious one of recent years would be the Wii remote. I mean, you tell somebody 20 years ago that they'll be able to move a remote around that will move something on a screen, and they'd think you were, well, you were mad, for <laughs> especially things like the balance board as well of Wii Fit and things like that. I mean, five years ago, I wouldn't have believed that would be happening, really. And admittedly, I'm probably a bit old-fashioned. I still prefer the controller. But admittedly, that's because I'm lazy. I can't be bothered to stand up and <laughs> leap about and things. But, but it is helping a lot of people that would be a bit intimidated by the amount of buttons on a 360 controller, for example. Um, and they just like the fact there's only a couple of buttons and they can actually move with emotion. I mean, the amount of people I've seen play a racing game and they're leaning left and right anyway, it makes sense that you can actually lean left and right, and you do go left and right. I mean, it's yeah. the biggest—it's uh, the biggest shift in control inputs we've seen in what you know, <laughs> nearly twenty years for sure. Sure. Um, I mean, there's also like the fact that uh, I mean, if you look at a 16-bit game, I mean, they're pretty much all like the side scrollers, the the platformers, the RPGs, that type of stuff. But I mean, you don't even see that stuff that often now. It's been not only a shift in technology, but also just a shift in the way people are developing games. And you don't, you haven't seen these type of shifts in other uh, entertainment forms, which is really strange that gaming has gone through so many. Is it just because we're kind of always looking for the next big thing, or is it is it just the way things were always supposed to happen? Well, I think games, you know, being associated with technology, just like everything else in this digital revolution, are going to go through changing processes a lot quicker than we, we've we seen in other historical mediums. But I do think, in many ways, there, there are parallels to other mediums. Games happen to be kind of uniquely defined by their method of delivery because it, it dictates, like we were just talking about, like space limitations and things like that. It actually dictates what can be um, accomplished in the medium. But at the same time, we have seen similar things in the in the beginnings of other mediums like you're just talking about film i i think about like the uh the nickelodeons of the early part of the 20th century where um you know were based on one short film reel <clears throat> they were displayed in public places you would go in and drop a nickel in and get to watch three four minute silent film or whatever it was by putting your face up to a little contraption right and so in the early days of that medium um because of similar kinds of restrictions that we're talking about with games, the the content of, of films were were different, you know. And then as we see, I think it was the the film, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was the film about Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution that was like the first multi-real film, right? And so then, um, as as we as the as that becomes more and more common, and they begin adding reels, you know, there's opens up obviously just like we we're talking about. I was talking about a minute ago with with these digital distribution possibilities, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. What you can do with this time, um, and then again in, in books in the same way, you know, uh, the invention of the printing press obviously changed the fact that they were being hand copied, etc. But um, we did see things like pamphlets being like affordably, you know, capable of being produced and like being a real, especially in in um, you know, I'm uh, in early American history being like a real um, mode of, of political discourse and artistic discourse at the same time. So I think um, I think we do see these parallels, and, and it's it's a simple fact of the matter that games, like you said, are, are incredibly young, accompanied by the fact that the changes in technology are faster than they've ever occurred in these previous areas. That they're more noticeable, perhaps, in this current era because we've all seen them happen within the time period that we've been consuming this media, you know, um, rather than spaced out over the course of 50 or 60 or 70 years or however long it takes, you know, the film industry to transition from film to digital or, or what have you. I, 
I think it's there are two ways of looking at it. I think this is get, what Shane is, is getting at. Is you can say gaming is evolving really, really quickly, or you could just say that um, it's nowhere near where it, its end point to maturity. And I think, you know, say taking films, for example, or, or television, the only real factor is, is the visual factor because... Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's no, the, you haven't got the interactivity factor of games and um, not really a space issue of things like uh, like Shane was saying. And at the end of the day, we're pretty much there with visuals. Um, the only th- things you can maybe go forward with in television and, and movies is uh, 3D and, and, you know, the whole, as you were talking about, the 3D glasses. Um, <laughs> so I guess where television and, and films, for example, have reached this point where they've got complete narrative freedom because they're not restrained by any factors that have failed to advance yet. Whereas you look at games and because things are constantly evolving, um, we're nowhere near knowing what we can do with an interactive uh, product like, like a, a video game. There's, we're, you know, where we are now is nowhere near the end, for, end, end point for gaming. And I think you know, it's, it's not that gaming's evolving so quickly. I, it's more for me like um, there's so much left for it to do. Right. I mean, even if you look at how, like, 10 years ago, how people thought that gaming would evolve, or 20 years ago, rather, I mean, I always assumed, you know, during the 2D era that games in 15, 20 years would still be 2D, just look really, really good. You know, kind of like the Capcom arcade games that used to come out. Um, and, I mean, look at the shift that's happened there. And even, like, if you look at a movie, like, 10 years ago, like, what kids in the future played as video games were always virtual reality with these stupid helmets and they're flying around like I mean that's what people thought the future of games were, and where we have come now is so different and crazy and wild that no one would have ever predicted it. So I mean, where we go from here is kind of like anyone's guess. Yeah. All right, so with that, we'll talk about how what games we used to play when we were younger. I mean, I know we all probably grew up with the same kind of era in gaming, but um, it'd be nice to see what you guys used to enjoy when you were younger. So um, uh, Shane, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, this is this is the really fun part, right? Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I was thinking about this, you know, in the week leading up, and and I've been gaming since I was old enough to understand that I could manipulate something on the screen with with my hands, you know, and a, a controller in my hands. When I was born into a, a family that had uh, my mom's mom had given us or all of her children uh, in television two systems, you know, sometime like right around my birth. So. Um, the first game that I remember being really, really into and trying actually to, to beat in a serious way was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons on the Intellivision because that was my dad's game and I and I you know hope to achieve some level of masculinity through that or something like that. But uh, <laughs> um, so, but after that, I, I uh, like I said, the Sierra games were were huge. I played King's Quest one through three before I really gave up on those, and then uh, Space Quest, the first only one of those. Um, but the Sierra games probably consumed most of the 80s in terms of, of my gaming habits. Um, I was late to the party on the NES and, and so forth, but, uh, but those Sierra Adventure games, like that, that really defines my, my first gaming period, in my opinion. Um, well, I was the first one in my family to have anything to do with games. Uh, nobody else around me had anything to do with games, so I spent quite a lot of my youth trying to get anything to do with games possible, really. I managed to get a Commodore 64 when I was only about five. And then as I was getting a bit older, I was starting to learn to try and program that in basic. I say program, it wasn't really programming, but it felt like it when you're about seven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's mainly playing things like Flimbo's Quest and Football Manager that 
have the worst graphics you could ever see. Just text, basically. And Flimbo's Quest was sort of, at the time, it was quite a good platformer, uh, side-scrolling platformer. But, I mean, it looks so horrific now. But I spent quite a lot of time playing just on the Commodore and trying to get goes on sort of obscure people's um, PCs. I played Wolfenstein obsessively, um, <laughs> which probably in hindsight wasn't really the healthiest of things, but, <laughs> but it was good fun. I remember playing Doom and another friend's PC and my mother coming in every now and then going, that looks awful, how can you play that? It's so violent. <laughs> I dread to think what she'd think of games now. Um <laughs> <laughs> I worked my way up to sort of a uh, Mega Drive or should I say Genesis and played loads of uh, Sonic Re and sort of all the traditional routes um, that was about it really I mean I managed to convince both my parents that games were good which I thought was quite a good going I managed wow. to hook them both <laughs> yeah. that's a good, that's a good <laughs> achievement definitely <laughs> <laughs> my mum still plays games obsessively now <laughs> my dad never yeah, my dad never really got the hang of it, but I think I was very lucky considering the amount of people who kept being told by their parents that games would never go anywhere and it was a waste of time and they'd never get anywhere with uh, spending their lives playing games. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, just played sort of the standard sort of stuff, really. <laughs> I think you and I must be the, maybe the two of the only 10, 20 people in the whole world who play that Football Manager game, because I know I play the exact <laughs> same one as you did. <laughs> like, to sort of, to think compared to the Football Manager games we play now, it was really basic. <laughs> it, it was like, you could, I think, select the team, and that was it. <laughs> and yeah, you just watched much. the game. And it was just pure luck. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> um, my, my history is... Uh, kind of, I think, probably a bit closer to Jennifer's than, than Shane's. I, I started on BBC Micro and I programmed a bit in BASIC as, as well, so uh, uh, we're both, we both have that uh, thing in common. Um, I, so I remember, satisfying, Oh, it? it was. Like, <laughs> when you, just to get the whole screen saying hello. <laughs> which, <laughs> that, I felt, that felt like a great achievement at the time. Um, I, 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 because I, I went on the um, Cranky Gamers UK podcast yesterday and we kind of talked about gaming's history and I, I realised, going back through my gaming history, that games I played, say like um, Chuck Yeg on the BC Micro, which is a 2D platformer, Rainbow Islands, Bubble Bobble, same same thing, Megalomania on the Amiga, which is a, a, an RTS, Super Mario Kart's a racing game, Street Fighter 2 is a fighter. I'm still playing the same genres that I was playing all the way back when. It's just they've come so far. I, I feel like maybe in some ways I've been, as much as I'm playing, you know, even first person shooters, I was playing Doom and Quake, and, and I, as much as gaming's advanced, I'm still playing a lot of the same genres I was playing all the way back when, which I don't know whether that says gaming hasn't necessarily advanced as much as we as we think it has, or whether I'm just completely backwards. Um, probably the second one, to be honest. But, <laughs> um, so it makes me backwards as well. <laughs> oh, 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 <laughs> I don't mean to drag you down with me, but um, I, 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 I don't know. It's it's There are lots of exciting new things in gaming but you know like we were talking with with michael as you remember joe and show seven like genre is kind of this one of the things that maybe kind of restricts development in some ways as much as it it, it helps it so um yeah I, I i i think uh i've got quite a rich gaming history but uh i one of the things i missed out which shane was talking about was the nez um i, I didn't really get into the nez until much later so i kind of feel bad about that how about you joe yeah, I mean, I was 
raised on the NES pretty much. So, uh, I mean, the first game I ever beat in my life was DuckTales on the NES, which is probably one of the best <laughs> games of all time. Um, and I played an unstoppable amount of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Uh, I can't even count how many times I played that game. But I've always, it's weird because now, like, I don't really care about, like, the best graphics in games or whatever. But back then, it was the complete opposite. I wanted the newest piece of technology all the time. <laughs> I didn't have a PC, so I just kept going for consoles. I got the Sega CD because it was amazing and, like, all this crazy stuff. Meanwhile, the games were, like, unbelievably simplistic and terrible. Um, I got a 3DO, which was weird and strange, and I, I obsessively played it because every game dropped to 10 bucks the week that I got my 3DO. So I just went to town and bought, like, every single game that was available in my local GameStop. So, I mean, I, I definitely had a lot of variety. I definitely played a lot of really weird, strange, small somewhat crappy games, but um, I think that kind of gives me a more appreciation for uh, the, the good ones that were out at the time. Unfortunately, since I was spending so much time playing 32X and 3DO, I kind of missed out on games like Super Mario RPG and Chrono Trigger, which I've never played either of. So uh, I kind of have to go back, and um, I'm lucky that I have an appreciation for old school gaming, so I can go back and play these games, because otherwise I would have missed out on some uh, some pretty damn good times. Yeah, you have you to say Chrono Trigger. Trigger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Agreed. I'm actually just working my way through that for the first time on on DS. Oh, wow. okay. But um, you uh, you bring up, I guess. I'm sorry. I, I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, uh, you mentioned. Oh, you're lucky that you appreciate old school gaming. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you bring that up, and I and it makes me wonder whether or not. Because um, I I think I you know mo- almost everyone has that same kind of feeling about it. Like well. There's a lot of value in these old games, but in a certain way, you have you had to have gone through it at the time to really appreciate what's going on with it. And I, I guess I'm starting to wonder as I watch this next generation of, of my cousins come up, and they're like seven, eight, nine years old now. Um, and I've been passing them along some old games, just say, hey, "Here's Super Mario Brothers three. You know, that's a that's a classic or whatever." And and in many ways, I see them going through the same levels of, of of obsession with the same games that I did at that time. And so, I, I wonder if if this what you talk about um, earlier in your life being so obsessed with the latest technology. I think I think you know anyone who's who's participated in the medium for um, these last twenty thirty years has felt that same that same impulse at one point in time. But I wonder if that is actually kind of in some ways a, a false construction. You know that maybe we we think that it's the case that um, these games are aging really poorly, but in fact, you know, I still find just as much enjoyment out of many of those old games that I did at the time, and I can play games that I never played at the time and get, you know, a lot of enjoyment out of it as well and see a lot of value in it. So, just wondering what you guys think about that. Well, I, for one thing, I'd love to come back to Chrono Trigger um, because, like you just, like you said, it's, it's come out on the DS recently, and I, I, reading the reviews, I, I found a few interesting comments. But to, to kind of come back to what you're specifically saying, like it's interesting to think about which games I go back and play, um, which of the older games I go back and play. And for me, it's most often it's the 2D platformers, like um, Super Mario Brothers or Sonic the Hedgehog 2. These are you know the games that I don't feel like have aged at all. They feel like the same tight gameplay that they were all, all those years ago. And I, when I show them to, to you know, uh, like my younger cousins or whatever, they appreciate it too. They they can get into it straight away. Um, I was kind of wondering to kind of extend Shane's thought, which of the older games uh, you play, Jennifer, which you you know you can still go back to and enjoy. Um, pretty much the same as you, the 2D platformers. I mean, 
Sonic, well, it never really improved once it went 3D. It just got worse. So I'd much rather go back to the old Sonics and old Mario Brothers. Um, I do tend to have a bit of a penchant for uh, Streets of Rage 2, which is probably the most repetitive gaming possible, but I still love it. <laughs> I think maybe it's because it's so simple, it's just easy to play. And I think probably if I showed it to a younger cousin, they probably would enjoy it. Or at least I'd force them until they ended up enjoying it. <laughs> it might be that one. <laughs> Certainly had, uh, Mario are ageless, I think. I had uh, never played Streets of Rage until about a month ago, and I jumped into all of them, actually, and I really enjoyed them, so they do hold up pretty well. You played them on the, uh, the Genesis Collection there? Yes, probably. sir. Yes, sir. Indeed. Uh, That's a great disc. Absolutely. Whereas the, the Mega Drive Collection, I guess, for, for 50% of this podcast. What about you, Shane? Because you mentioned that you know some of the older games, which you feel like maybe we, we feel have aged poorly. You can come back to and, and and maybe they haven't aged so badly. Which ones do you go back to and, and enjoy? <laughs> um, I actually spend a lot of time kind of playing old games. Um, just I, I I never had very much access when I was younger to to the software because. Um, you know, we were relatively poor, and um, so I was about one game a year was about my pace for, for maybe a decade. So I, a couple of years ago, I I um, picked up a hacked original Xbox, and it's got all these emulators and ROMs, etc. So slowly going my way through, making my way through the history of games, right? Um, but for whatever reason, interestingly, lately I've developed this real masochistic streak, and I never had a an Atari of any of any incarnation of an Atari. So um, I've decided that I want to really spend some time with... Um, like the worst Atari games for, <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reasons. I, I've, I've been playing through Pac-Man and I've been playing through like E.T. because these are games that like I, I'm, I very well may have been stuck with if I'd had an Atari at the time, right? Um, so I actually, in an interestingly, I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of playing these really terrible, terrible games on the old systems, but um, if I'm going to go back and, and play a game for, for sheer enjoyment, it, 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 I, I'm going to fall in line with, with you guys too and say that it's mostly those 2D platformers um, you know, 2D fighters are, are are pretty good still too. But um, but yeah, I I mean, in, well, in fact, I mean, if I had, if I were able to get an Intellivision emulator running, I would play Thunder Castle, which is just kind of a um, lock and chase or whatever kind of uh, uh, game mechanic, right? But I mean, something like Burger Time or something like that. Those those games still have just as much enjoyment to me as they did, and that's in a sense, I guess, essentially a two 2D platformer, but. Uh, with just really terrible graphical representation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I tend to like. I try and go back to everything, but I end up, only end up sticking with certain few of them. Like I'll play Punch Out eternally, pretty much, and uh, I'll play stuff like that. And I'll try stuff that I used to like, like um, I don't even know. Like I'll try like some of the Sega CD stuff, and I'll play it for a little. While. I mean, like Dragon's Lair. I love that game because I kind of have every single thing memorized in it. I could just play it without even looking at the screen. <laughs> But if I was actually to pick that game up now and try it, I think I'd probably throw up because it's just ridiculously hard and impossible. And you have to watch it a hundred times to play it. But I don't know. I mean, I think I think the more you know, back then a lot of games really forced the challenge onto you and forced you to replay a lot of sections and stuff like that. And I think those are the ones that kind of fail now to really recapture you or and even a new audience like that. I mean, as great as the Ninja Gaiden games were on NES, I don't really know if a new fan can play one of those and get into it, because those games are wicked hard. Mm -hmm. um, 
But a game like, uh, you know, Super Mario Brothers 3 or something like that, where you can just jump right into it, you can play a bunch of levels, you can do fine, I think those those type of things are the ones that really stick. Sonic, you can go back to Sonic Eternally, because it's really not that hard, you can jump right into it, and a lot of the conventions in that game are kind of still around today. So I think that's, it, it's, it's, it definitely varies game by game, but um, but it's also, you know, how advanced that game was for its time. That's a really good point. Do you, you know, feel like when we look at these games, because we're used to some of the mechanics that were around at the time, you know, we kind of, we played, we played through games where we were aware and accepting that, you know, we might have to uh, keep our lives and, uh, you know, save points were going to be frugal and uh, there wouldn't be any hints or tutorials. Like, do you feel that traditional gamers aren't really the ones to judge whether games age well because like you say new players are the other ones who are the other ones going to be playing games in 20 30 years time uh, not us sure i mean i think we definitely have a we're, we're definitely more inclined to like these things like i i played uh i never played castlevania 3 in my life i played it a month ago and i jumped right into it i loved it i played through the whole thing in, in one sitting and i don't really know if you gave you know a 15 year old kid castlevania 3 if he'd be able to stick with it for more than five seconds because it, it doesn't look good and it's very simplistic and a lot of other factors. I think, you know, our generation can appreciate these kind of things because we lived through them and because we're used to that kind of thing and, and we can go back to old games whenever we want, you know, interchangeably with the new stuff and, and enjoy them. But I think a lot of new gamers would have trouble playing that stuff just because it's not what they're used to. It's not 3D. It's not advanced. It doesn't have all these simplistic mechanics. It doesn't have a huge tutorial in the beginning that explains the whole game to you. It just kind of drops you in and says, good luck basically. Um, and I heard an interesting thing on Giant Bomb a couple of weeks ago. They had an interview with, um, I, I can't remember the man's name, but he was, I believe he's from EA. And he said he has a, uh, a six-year-old kid. And what he's doing, he realized that this kid would not be able to play NES and Super Nintendo and, um, and enjoy them once he's played the 3D stuff. So at a very young age, he started his kid the same way that he started himself with NES. And he only let his kid play NES for a couple of years. Then he moved him on to Super Nintendo. Then he moved him on to, to Genesis and to you know, PlayStation. So he's giving this, his child the same evolution that we got as kids, but in a much quicker period because he already has all the stuff available to him. And he says that, you know, obviously his kid is enjoying this stuff because he doesn't know that this other stuff is out there. But I think it's also a very interesting way of, of easing a new gen gamer into the way that we grew up with games because it allows them to appreciate the stuff that if you, you know, gave a kid a, a Wii right away, he might not be able to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely agree there. I mean, um, I've recently been trying to get my mum into more games, because I haven't got kids, but I can use my mum as a new gamer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been sort of trying to get her into role-playing games, because, uh, well, admittedly I'm biased, it's because it's my favourite genre, and I thought she'd like that sort of thing. And so I got hooked on to Dragon Quest VIII on the PS2, and she loved it. But the problem is now, because she's got used to those graphics, when I've tried to sort of encourage her to play 2D RPGs, she just doesn't want to know because she instantly goes, oh, well, the graphics aren't very good and there's no um, sort of, uh, decent music or anything because it's that bit older. And she's just not interested then because she's just got so used to having good graphics. Well good graphics for the PS2, that I'm starting to think, oh, I should have started her on things like the Final Fantasies and things like that first, and then hopefully she'd appreciate those. 
which makes me sound incredibly snobby again. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just my attempt to try and get hooked on Final Fantasy VII so I can relive it through her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. Those are very interesting, like case studies of of what happens when people are are introduced to these uh, to these things, you know, in controlled or uncontrolled ways. But unfortunately, like. Uh, you know, as the medium gets older and older and older and becomes more of a of a cultural, you know, obtains like more cultural significance, we're not we're just not going to be able, unfortunately, to, to control the way that the majority of the population is introduced to the medium. And I don't see that that old games will ever have, you know, very wide market value. And I think that you can look at at any artistic medium, and and I think. You could see kind of similar things. I mean, uh, there'll be rehashes of things at certain times, but they're almost always redressed or remade to be um, presentable to an audience that's like that's used to um, flashier special effects in, in cinema or different styles of, of um, translation and in, in, in literature, you know. Um, but you know, at, at the same time, I think if you look at those other mediums too, there are a percentage of people who, based on either just their general love for the medium or um, or what have you, are going to go back and to, and to appreciate those stepping stones. I mean, for many of us, um, you know, it's probably pretty tough to go back and watch a, a silent film. I mean, it, it's not to say there's no enjoyment to be had from it, but it's so far removed from what we're used to in in the cinematic in cinematic presentation, you know. But um, but at the same time, you know, there's an entire subset of people who love watching silent films, and they knit and grow up with them, so this is not based on any type of nostalgia. The same parallel can be drawn to literature, where, um, you know, there are certainly, as we know, like many, many people who are just obsessed with, like, Victorian-era literature and, and clearly have no um, no personal connection to that era, but they just find something about the aesthetics of the time period appealing, whether or not, you know... Um, they they would seem relevant to a wide market audience is is kind of a, a different question, you know? but I think there's always some some relevant truth to be garnered from these older mediums or these older um, instances of, of these mediums, you know, um, but just not for most of the public because they are I think generally more interested in the newest biggest thing and whether or not that's a remake of an old thing like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever we've seen this in, in film lately, you know, or in gaming obviously, but uh, but yeah they they want. They want um, to feel like they're on the cutting edge. I think, for the most part, probably. It's, it's, it, oh, sorry, you go, um, Jennifer. I was just gonna um, agree. Really, I was just gonna say that I can, if I watch a silent film, I can appreciate uh, how it helped for the future. The same as if I read, say, Romeo and Juliet, I can appreciate. Um, what um, what relevance it will have for future literature and then future films and so forth. So hopefully future generations will see the same with old Sonic games and Mario and things, and we'll be able to look and just see they were the building blocks, so to speak, of what they're playing now. That's a really interesting thought to kind of... I just like the idea of a class playing Sonic as their <laughs> yeah. education in, in history of video games. Um, but to kind of... If you take films then as that as that parallel uh, for to, to video games, um, silent films is one thing, but I don't think you say if you go to Doctor No, which I think is early seventies or late sixties, uh, the first the Mid-60s, first yeah. yeah the first Bond film. You know that 
doesn't feel too culturally irrelevant and doesn't feel like it's lost too much through because uh, because of what visual improvements been made with cinema, um, and that's you know forty years ago. Uh, so I I feel like okay, if you silent films is one thing, but you don't have to go too much more forward. Where I feel like there because like I said earlier, cinema can't really advance any further than it has got to now. Um, there's a point where classic films. Uh, still have the same value well maybe not culturally but if you ignore because culture is like you say a different thing um, I don't think they've lost any of their other value from being watched whereas I feel games have like the visual barrier is huge like Jennifer was saying it's 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 a different thing from what other mediums have to deal with I feel like culture and, and technology that they present different barriers well it's a, I feel like like you've said earlier Films have kind of reached this plateau of technology, and, and um, so the, the advances, you know, are not going to be great in the in, in in terms of fundamentally what the medium is presenting. Um, and so at that point, the changes, rather than being like the shift that we've seen from you know silent film to to films including sound to um, then you know color film or, or whatever 3D film, um, the changes are there are. Once those have all been sorted out, then the changes become stylistic, right? And that does remove a lot of the barriers um, that that we're talking about. I think with these with these early games, and I think it's just a simple fact of 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 the matter is that um, you know forty years in film is is a, a you can make films that will reach across that divide because of the fact that there's a, a, an accepted plateau of technology. And, and whether or not we'll ever get there in, in, in gaming, I guess, is, is really anybody's guess. I mean, um, I think it's likely that we'll hit a point where the changes between eras in gaming are, are purely stylistic, but um, that's, that might very well be a long way off, you know? Uh, yes, I mean, that, well, that's, that's interesting, because I, I, when I was researching this myself, I, I found an interview from Patrick Klepek uh, with... Tadashi Iguchi at Namco Bandai, the guy behind uh, Pac-Man Championship Edition and, and Galaga Legions, and he sat, he had this to say about influential games at the, which have been made at the moment, and whether they demand a remake in 20 years now. Because you were talking about uh, you know the rehashes that happen in other mediums, and he was say he said uh, I think more than half of the games you see today with huge budgets, huge, huge budgets, sorry, and such a realistic focus will either be stale or forgotten in 20 years. On the other hand, the masterpieces of the 80s will definitely be enjoyed far into the future. The reason for this is simple. Many of the classic titles have unique, unique and fascinating mechanics that can't be diminished by the advancement of technology. And I think he's getting at kind of an interesting point, like, in terms of the games we're playing now, how, how do you think they'll be perceived in 20 years' time? And, and uh, kind of because we're so obsessed at the moment with graphical improvement in, in gaming and, uh, you know, to... That the the race to find that zenith, which uh, seems ever closer, I don't know how that's affecting how games will how games are evolving at the moment and how they'll be perceived in the future. Um, um, I think I'd have to agree, Ray. I mean, just sort of thinking of games I played recently. I played Silent Hill Homecoming, and I still ended up preferring the first Silent Hill because essentially it was just slightly better graphics, and that was it. Ray. It was just like you said, a rehash of the original Silent Hill. Uh, format pretty much and although it's controversial say i'd say the same with grand theft auto 4 it felt like grand theft auto 3 just changed slightly and i suspect in years to come people will remember the third one 
rather than the fourth one as the memorable game that created uh, sort of, you know, a very good Grand Theft Auto game. I mean, I might be wrong, but I'd say that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting concept, and it's one that I think people have already started to notice, and you often hear people talk about how terrible Nintendo 64 games or PlayStation 1 games look because they were that first round of, of 3D technology, you know. And But at the time, we were all you know, amazed by what was being accomplished. But yeah, just a little over 10 years down the road, um, we are already, I mean, culturally, we're already out of love with those, with many of those games, you know, only um, a very few of them appear to be um, playable anymore with our, with what our new expectations are of graphical representation. But I kind of think in, in many ways, though, that's a false perception again, once just as a product of being butted right up against um the, you know, so closely related in our memories to to the difference between PlayStation One and PlayStation Three is is just not half the distance between like PlayStation Three and and uh, NES or whatever, right? So um, we're we're comparing PlayStation One to PlayStation Three when really we should be appreciating it for what it is, and that's not something that we'll really be able to do until you know probably a few years down the line. Yeah, I mean, it definitely it depends on what kind of game it is. Like, I mean, if you some games are built to be a product of their time. Like, I mean, if you look at all the, the recent, uh, you know, cover-based, uh, recharging health, third-person shooters, I mean, they're kind of built to be now games that capitalize on the success of Gears of War and give players a similar experience that is also enjoyable on its own, but basically is Gears of War. Um, you know, those games won't really stand up the test of time just because they were kind of built to be played now, just like the Mario clones that were built on the NES probably don't stand up as well as Mario does because they were just built to be similar. But, I mean, the classics, the true games, like, as um, as the uh, Pac-Man producer said, like, the original Pac-Man, the original Donkey Kong, all those games will stand up because their core mechanics were so original and, and fun and, and, and just enjoyable at the time that they will hold up. I mean, and as they continue to remake older games that have similar mechanics, just, you know, evolve them a little bit, I think that's, that's going to be that's probably the way it's going to go. I mean, you can always make a game like Pac-Man enjoyable. You throw a couple of new mechanics into it, and it's fine. But, like, if you look at some of the more simplistic stuff uh, from, from, from their era, kind of like um, one of my favorite games when I was a kid was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game. It was just this most amazing game ever back when it came out. But if you look at that game now, it's incredibly simplistic and almost hard to play just because all you're doing is mashing the punch button the whole time. It didn't really have any mechanic in it that made you want to play it. So um, I think I think the the mechanically brilliant games and the product of their time games are going to be weeded out, and you know certain of them can be readapted for a new generation, while others will uh, live in the past, I suppose you say. But um, Jennifer, what do you think about the the Silent Hill remake that they're making now for the Wii? They're changing a whole lot, but they're kind of adapting the mechanics that um, worked in the original game to fit the new platform. Um, I haven't actually heard too much about it. Um, got terrible keeping up to date with Wii News. Right. But they, uh, if it's... Sorry. They removed combat. There's no combat in the game, and you just kind of explore the environments, and um, you, you pretty much go through a story without having to deal with the arduous, awful combat of the series and all the problems with the first one. So they're kind of removing all the problems from the original game while keeping the same characters and story and stuff for the new generation. Then that should be brilliant, <laughs> in which case, because Homecoming, the main fault it had was the combat was just atrocious. It felt too outdated. And I loved the exploring, 
but the combat just let it down so much that I'd rather be exploring and feel vulnerable in this Silent Hill world without right. the weapons uh, disrupting everything, really. Right, so Silent Hill kind of is doing it kind of the right way, whereas something, some other games have yeah. not quite adapted it. Yeah, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they um, adjust to that. I mean, I'd like to think it'll be a good thing, so hopefully it will be. To kind of get back to what you said, Joe, about um, unique and fa- uh, mechanics, original mechanics that he makes these games stand the test of time, and this is, you know, what Eguchi uh, said. I'm not sure. Like I, I, for me, I just wonder if it's about trying to work within the scope of what was available to you then, and rather than trying to advance what what you had. So, if you look at a game like um, Oblivion, which is trying to be so cutting edge, trying to do so much with what was available, maybe too much, that loses. That's lost something already in the few years that it's been out. You know, I feel like looking at it now, looking at Fallout 3, that the visual level is different the the kind of tightness and the whole of the whole uh, uh quest selection and all that all that stuff was just is better now in Fallout 3 whereas kind of with these arcade games and and the 2D platform in particular there wasn't this attempt to do something incredibly you know uh, advancement advancing uh, sorry in, incredibly evolving with um with what they were doing they were just trying to to really make a game that <laughs> you know, just work within the limits. So I, I guess that's why I think 2D platformers really stand, not just because they're iconic and they're so associated, associated with gaming, but because they're so simplistic and uh, they don't, you know, there's not much to them that uh, they don't lose anything really over the years at all for me. And I, I think for anyone really, I, 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 for everyone who's new to gaming who I've given a 2D platformer just can get, uh, can understand it and appreciate it immediately. The 2D platformer is very, very well defined. And I actually read an interesting quote recently in a, in a textbook of all places, but it was something like um, the first person to do something just has to worry about doing it, and then everybody afterwards can worry about making it beautiful, right? And so when you have something like a 2D platformer where we've got instances, I mean, probably the first one I played was like Pitfall, right? right. Um, uh, you know, by the time you get to Mario Brothers... They understand what they're doing when they attempt to produce an experience in that design and are therefore capable of doing something that is, you know, infinitely better than, than Pitfall, at least in my opinion. You know? So um, I guess what happens is, is once all those general general rule sets of, of the game type are hashed out, then you have a chance to really get in there and say, okay, what's the best way to craft this experience, you know, aside from we don't, we no longer have to worry about what is this experience. You know? I, I totally agree. And I guess that's why you're getting games like Braid and Fez, which are, you know, because the, like you say, everything is so defined, it's just about really exploring it. And so you've got the independent uh, side of development really doing a lot of exciting things with 2D platformers. And uh, I don't think that's just coincidence. I think that's because it's a, and I know Jonathan Blow is kind of doing it in a referential way into some ways with Braden, but I, I don't think it's just that. I think they're, like you say, because it's so defined, that gives greatest creativity to the people developing within it. One one question which kind of comes to what you, were, you Jennifer and Joe were talking about with uh, the Silent Hill remake is there's so much talk about this Final Fantasy VII remake, which people are demanding <laughs> incessantly every single day, and... Uh, I just the more I think about it, the more I'm not sure if I would want it because I think 
in terms of n narrative quality, I feel like that game has lost something over it over the years, and it would need a, a narrative overhaul. Um, I don't know what what do you think, Jennifer? Because I know you're obviously a big Final Fantasy mm. player. What, what how would you feel about a remake if it was true to the game like it was on the PlayStation One? I'm probably a terrible person to ask because I'm a complete, <laughs> a complete Final Fantasy VII fan, well, fan girl, I suppose, um, because it it just came along at the right time in my life that that was all I played for probably well over a year. <laughs> Did absolutely everything possible in it. So there's sort of two sides to it. The fan girl side of me would love a remake and would think it would be brilliant as long as only the graphics were changed. And then the more, hopefully, the more intelligent side of me then thinks it doesn't really need it. Because if it's the only thing I want changed is the graphics, what would stop me actually just playing the PlayStation 1 game? And I'd hate it if they changed too much about it. Um, you know, so, well, if they suddenly added um, extra scenes and made it a director's cut version or something like that, right. it wouldn't have the same magic to it for me. So I think I've got to agree with you that I don't really want a remake of it. I think I'd rather just leave it where it is so that people that were as obsessed with it as I was are perfectly happy and I don't have to put up with newer gamers saying, oh, it's not as good as so or Final Fantasy Thirteen or Final Fantasy Twelve. Well, hopefully I wouldn't say that with Twelve, but I <laughs> <probably> would with, <laughs> would with Final Fantasy Ten and Final Fantasy Thirteen. So I think, I think it sorry, deserves its place in history, I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to think once you bring narrative into it that there's and, and uh, more complicated uh, factors that it's not quite as easy to just remake as Pac-Man. There are two people, to, two kind of people to satisfy. I mean, what, what do you think, Shane? Yeah, I I don't know. In, in, in general, I think I'm in favor of, of remaking and, and redoing games. And, and although in all mediums that often turns out the wrong way, <laughs> I mean, anybody who's as a, was a slasher fan has watched any of these recent remakes has probably been fairly disappointed in most of them. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important that we don't allow a divide to happen whereby we start thinking things are untouchable in culture and that we can't, um, uh, bring either bring them back um, in their entirety in, in a remade version or incorporate elements of them um, into new things and and you know let what we're creating now be informed by the past in that way and I think you know this is getting into a lot of uh, bigger issues I guess but I I just feel like it's important that while we we respect the past we also um, I, I anyway I subscribe to the idea that there's nothing original and there's nothing unique. So I'm also interested to see what current artists' take on the past would be, um, you know, if they're given the opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, I can see your point there. Admittedly, as much as I like RPGs, they are very samey, really. For a lot, I mean, some of them will have a different battle system, but for the most part, the story will be usually a 17-year-old boy will orphaned or something terrible happened to him and then he finds out that he's got these mystical powers and then he has to go save the world with a load of other people that's pretty much it even <laughs> though I love it <laughs> he's pretty much it for most of them but I suppose you could argue Final Fantasy 7 Remake has already been done a few times with Lost Odyssey <laughs> and Blue Dragon and <laughs> 
So, yeah, I can see your point there. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of... Uh, I, I like that kind of idea of a middle ground of insp- inspiration rather than necessarily remaking. And I guess you can look at things like Akami uh, relating to Zelda and uh, so many games have been the production of, of inspiration. I... <laughs> I don't know if I quite agree with you, Shane. I, I feel like some. I, I feel like even if it's just because it's very a personal view, because I played these games when I was, you know, at the time. I say if they remade Ocarina of Time to try and subscribe to try and um, I don't know to bring it more into modern modern relevance. I don't know to graphically improve it, whatever. As much as I can't go back and necessarily play that game now and enjoy it like I did then, I would hate that. It would, mm-hmm. it would, it would. I disagree with every part of my soul. <laughs> I just think that's that's a that's a terrible thing to happen. But um, it's I, sacred, really, isn't it? Yeah, it does feel sacred. <laughs> it does feel sacred. And I, I know that's personal. I, I'm not personal. Obviously, loads of people like the game, but I I, I realise that's subjective. Um, um, I think. I think that's the more common opinion, really. And, 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 I mean, even I'm troubled by things like the Psycho remake where they kind of just remade it shot for shot, you know. I'm, I'm in many scenes, anyway. I'm, I'm one, you know, I wonder, like, well, what, what, are you, what are you bringing to this other than just shooting it in a way that's going to be more um, visually palatable to audiences now? But, no, I, I, I think absolutely most people, most people would probably agree with you because there is this tendency to kind of... Um, take these things that have been emotionally important to us and whatever medium and, and attach this significance. And that's, you know, and that's fine. I, but for me personally, I just don't feel like, for instance, you know, the recent, like, like I said, the recent like Texas Chainsaw Massacre remakes have in any way detracted from the original film. It's still one of my favorite films of all time. I think it's, it's still a huge accomplishment, you know, and I can go back and watch it and get just as much enjoyment out of it. Or I can see the version that might appeal to 15 year olds now in the, in the, you know, in the popular cinema. So, I know you're playing um, Chrono Trigger DS, like which mm-hmm. we kind of goes back into what Jennifer's talking about RPGs. Like, how does that stand up in, uh, at 13 years later? Well, those Japanese RPGs, I think um, that formula that was developed, I guess. I mean, it's not a genre that I was very familiar with up until really, really recently, actually. But those formulas that it looks like were developed kind of on the NES are still very much in, in place, you know, throughout. I mean, even continuing currently, like I'm playing something like Persona 4, and you can see echoes of Final Fantasy, you know, uh, 1 and 2 in, 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 in a game that was released just last year. But, uh, yeah, I think it. I think because of that, like same thing we were talking about with 2D platformers, because that rule set is so well-defined, I think it holds up brilliantly. And if you just make that jump to say, okay, I understand things like the battle system, I understand things, um, you know, like dialogue trees, etc., that that it's perfectly enjoyable as long as you are familiar with the genre. I think, you know, that, as far as I know, I think that is a good instance because it's hardly been um, made up at all uh, in its in its remake. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think there's been much kind of touch-up done to the, to the visuals, really. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends how much a game needs a remake because, to me, Final Fantasy VII is technically still okay, although the graphics are quite poor. Uh, now. When it comes to actual gameplay, I think it's fine. But in the case of something like Road Rash, which I loved playing on the Mega Drive or Genesis, it looks awful now, but it also, the handling's pretty bad for um, steering a bike and so on. So if there was a remake, I think I'd quite like to see that, because it'd be nice to see the same sort of um, story, uh, well, just well, I say story, driving along, bashing people in the head with um, baseball bats and chains, but it's still fun. <laughs> but I'd like to see it done well with modern day technology rather than 
be stuck with the one that looks awful and has poor handling. But I suppose <laughs> it, it depends on the game, really. So funny that you say Road Rash story. I had a Road Rash novel. <laughs> it came with a magazine. Where when I, it, it was like this short booklet, and it lit, it was telling the story of the of the racer and how he came through the ranks as a, a youngster and battled his way to the front. And it was terrible, but <laughs> I loved it when I was nine. So it, it, yeah, it shows you what roast into classes can do. I still read it. And like this is terrible, but I kind of enjoy reading this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that like with Final Fantasy 7 and all those other kinds I mean if you look at games that have the games, the classic games that have been updated in the last couple of years I mean there was Metal Gear which was remade on GameCube as, as Twin Snakes and I mean there was a pretty big backlash against that game because of the liberties they took with the original I mean Snake was doing Matrix moves in the remake and doing all this crazy stuff and people didn't really like that too much and um, the Resident Evil remake that came out on GameCube I mean that game changed the tone so drastically from the original that it was it felt almost like a completely different game. So I mean, when whenever they they try and do something like a, an iconic game like Final Fantasy VII, it's it's going to be it's going to be a really tough job. I mean, they have to ride the line of of remaking what people liked about the original while also not changing too much, but also having to update it a little bit. Otherwise, people will not like it. A new people that haven't played it before will not like it. And I think I'm not usually a huge fan of remakes because I'd much rather see a new chapter in that universe rather than uh, just rehashing something old. But I do appreciate, in some respects, if a game can be remade well and brought up to the current uh, standards of the genre and, and remade. And Final Fantasy, if the, the people who want to take that on, if they have ideas to kind of keep the spirit of the old one alive while also, you know, kind of making it feel fresh and new, then, I mean, I'm all for it, but... I don't necessarily think that they will because, I mean, every Final Fantasy since then has kind of taken some of the same ideas and used them over and over again, as uh, Jennifer said with Lost Odyssey and, and, Blue, and uh, Blue Dragon and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, so that's pretty much that. I, I think that uh, where we're heading with this is, I mean, um, is how games have aged and how they are made available now to the, to the new consumers who, who want to play these old games. I mean, there's a lot of avenues for gamers to take to play the old stuff. There's Virtual Console. I mean, PSN has a few PS1 games up for download. Um, Xbox is backwards compatible. But, I mean, if you really want to get your hands on a lot of the older titles, it's kind of really hard unless you want to either spend massive amounts of money on eBay trying to get them or using... Um, more dubious methods of um, using the internet to find ways to play these games. Um, so I wanted to talk to you guys and think what, what you what you thought about games um, as far as preservation, as far as keeping these games out there for people to play way beyond when you know they can be bought in a store or, or something like that. So um, so I was think, what, what do you guys think about how games, how old games are made available now? I mean, do you think that? The virtual consoles and stuff like that. Do you think that's going to be the way that the future of this type of archiving games, or do you think that a, a new method needs to be created to allow these games to thrive and be made available to more people? Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely an interesting question. I think we just happen to be at this time right now where that's not a priority culturally, but I do think that. 20 or 30 years from now, probably every local library is going to have at least some kind of um, game collection. It's it's going to be, you know, just just necessary for them to stay stay relevant. Um, 
And in the meantime, I don't personally have any problem with um, you know people seeking out these these other methods of, of of enjoying the games because I don't I personally feel like it's it's not something that we can do to um, retract a, a piece of art from the culture once it's been released. You know whether or not Nintendo wants to repress. Um, you know, whatever. I guess Nintendo is a bad a bad example because of the virtual console. But I do think, like those, I, I although I, I run emulators and I and I play on ROMs. Like if something is available for me to purchase, I'll purchase it every time. You know what I mean? So, um, despite that seeming like a, a huge problem, I think it's just a fact that these games aren't yet available. And I think, um, you know that that just like we see with books and films and everything, there's going to be a mechanism that develops for distributing older uh, older pieces that that might still resonate with people um and but in the meantime i think that rather than not having access to these games that that people should seek access to them um preferably you know uh through giving giving you know some kind of resources to the creators but uh if that's not possible then i don't think that it's it's their right to to keep you from experiencing that i mean the problem with older games the way they're being presented now through virtual console and stuff is that you know like, they charge you five bucks, there's no demo or anything, so you kind of just have to take a blind leap and assume that you're going to like the game that you want. I mean, like Shane was saying, he got an Xbox and he started playing some of the old Intellivision uh, and Atari games on that. I mean, I, I'm i just going to assume, Shane, that you wouldn't have blindly bought games on Atari and Intellivision through some type of download service um, just to try them out. Well, I mean, I, I picked up the Intellivision Lives compilation a few years right, ago right. Um, without having, you know, tried many, many of the games that were on there. And, but, you know, I, I did find I only had a Wii for about a year before I sold it because it was getting absolutely no use. I actually traded it for that, that Xbox that you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, during that time I bought probably 30 virtual console games or, or right around there. Um that I many of which I'd never owned or played, and I'm not saying that that virtual console is um, is in any way the ideal method of delivery. I think there's some serious serious flaws with it, and perhaps um, it's even overpriced. I think, but um, at the same time, um, you know, methods like that, just because there are problems with it right now, um, those things will get sorted out. I think the market will likely, you know, make the the changes that need to happen for people to really use it as a as a as accessibly as they would buying those little Dover thrift editions or whatever from Barnes and Noble for three dollars of of books that have lapsed into the public domain you know uh, I totally agree I mean the thing I'd say is that at the moment the virtual console is is designed to cater to the gamer who knows what they you know what they're buying it's not like you say, it's not designed for a kid who's going, oh, what history, uh, what game from history am I going to play? And I guess we're, because of where gaming is at, at the moment, it's only what really, like we said at the top of the show, 40 years old, you can still go to these, um, to the new sites, the game sites, whatever, and someone will talk about the virtual console release and go, oh, I remember playing this, da, 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 you should check it out. So you've kind of still got that word of mouth element. People can say, go check out Elite, even if you, even if you have trouble with it, go check it out. Or, um, Go check out uh, Pac-Man. Well, not Pac-Man. Everyone should know that. And if you don't, and you're listening, <laughs> hmm. Um, but <laughs> um, like and I, a couple of things I wanted to make mention of, which is really interesting, um, is uh, a couple of sites. Um, I, I don't know if you know of uh, of one of them, Jennifer Moby Games in the UK. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great they, site. Oh yeah, I use it all the time. It's a great site. Fantastic. Yeah. So I found one of the games I mentioned at Top of the Show, Repton, available for download. There, old BBC Micro game, which uh, that made me very happy. Um, 
and the other thing is this uh, project which is going on in the UK called um, called the National Video Game Archive, which uh, is being done between the National Media Museum and Nottingham Trent University, and they're trying to preserve a lot of the games which have been you know physically lost. Um, so, and there are so many, especially from the era, you know, the BBC Micro era, uh, Spectrum, and, and you know, just going a bit before that, there are so many games which have kind of gone off the face of the map because they didn't get picked up. <laughs> Only five or six people played them or whatever. So, um, I think as much as like Shane was saying, it's not necessarily a priority. There are people who are already kind of working towards this, and um, I, I, I agree with Shane. It's going to be one of those things where in 20, 30 years' time, there will, it will be next to the film section of the library there'll be this uh, section of all these great games I'd like to think uh, that people will be playing them um, picking them up and thinking well I've heard about that in game class (laughs) 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 Uh, maybe that's a bit too idealistic (laughs) I do I do wonder if more games will become lost in future years because the amount of digital downloads and things like Braid you can only download on the PC or the 360 as far as I know um, what will happen when the consoles move on so say for example all those virtual console games you download and all the arcade games on the Xbox and PSN what happens when the next console comes along I mean hopefully there'll be some way implemented that means you'll be able to play those games anyway, because obviously you paid for them. But it does make me wonder if maybe some will get lost along the way in transit, so to speak. Well, there's already a case of this, actually. There was a game that um, it, Sierra owned it um, called Lost Cities, I believe, on Xbox 360. Oh, and yeah, I read when, that. when Activision bought um, Sierra, they pulled that game from the service, and it's gone now. I mean, you can't download this game. If you have the demo on your hard drive, you can't buy the full version. So the only way you can get this game now is if you bought the game when it came out and you still have it on your hard drive. That I mean, that's it. That game is gone. And the same thing with that god-awful advertising game, Yaris, that came to the Xbox 360. It was a free game. <laughs> it was hilariously bad. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, an electric car fighting scorpions in a tunnel. That was pretty much the, 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 the game. But, Wait, um, where's the bad bit? That sounds awesome. Oh, this, <laughs> you have not played it, sir. I, I, I spent 30 minutes with that game. And I, I will never get that back. But um, they pulled that from the service, and that's gone. I don't have it on my hard drive, sadly, and uh, I can't get it back. It's gone. So, I mean, that's a real problem, especially with the consoles, um, and I don't really know how they're going to resolve that. I was just going to say, people will hack it until they decide to make it available again is what's going to happen, <laughs> likely, you know. You just said I don't know if they'll bother with Yaris. They might not bother doing that. But... Yeah, yeah, probably not. Yeah. yeah, I think it's okay for some games to be lost to the <laughs> to the sands of time. Um, so, so on that note, I think it's a great time to call to, um, today's discussion to a close. So uh, I just want to say thanks to both Shane and Jennifer for being great guests. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, and uh, to see if they wanted to offer any plugs or shout-outs for the sites that they uh, do such great work for. So, um, Shane, I know that just from the first one, you did this great last episode with uh, Mackenzie Walk, the author of the highly acclaimed Gamer Theory, which uh, everyone should check out. So, uh, so go to that. But if you just wanted to tell people a bit more about First Wall Rebate. Yeah, First Wall Rebate is, is a blog and podcast we started just about a year ago now. And... Um, it's three three guys. We are all coming out of literature backgrounds, so we kind of talk about games um, as an artistic medium, but using kind of a lot of our understanding of, of what literature is and, 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 and so forth. But yeah, our, our most recent episode was an interview with, with McKinsey Wark about gamer theory, and we talk about um, 
you know, a lot of what's going on currently in the economy and how he applies his understandings of game space to that stuff. And, and I, yeah, absolutely great episode, but it, it's a lot of fun. Um, we enjoy doing it. We just try to kind of take things in maybe a little bit different direction than we typically see things going. So yeah, firstwallrebate.com. Absolutely. Definitely check it out. Um, how about you, Jennifer? Like you said, you're just on the review for Silent Hill Homecoming. So people should go yeah. check that out. Uh, you weren't that big on the game, were you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't that keen. I was just disappointed, really, more than anything. <laughs> when a parent tells you off, they're not annoyed, they're disappointed. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best summing up of a, of a game review I've ever heard. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Jennifer, did you want to yeah, give some plugs and shout-outs for the places you, you do work for? Um, yeah, I'd say go to xboxgamezone.co.uk. Obviously, it's aimed at the UK market, but we're very welcoming for anybody from anywhere else. Um, sort of building, trying to build up a bit more um, attention to the site. Uh, I know for a fact, because I've got it in front of me, there will be a Resident Evil 5 review soon, once I've worked my way through it. Um, <laughs> and for podcast fans, I'd recommend uh, theportablegamer.com which although I'm not a part of their podcast, I do write reviews for, and it's very handy if you want to trawl your way through uh, the App Store for the iPhone. Much easier if you just listen to the podcast to me, and we tell you what's good, um, what you really shouldn't play. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely quite a lot of stuff on the uh, iStore which uh, probably should be avoided. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems to be either really good games or games that should be annihilated from the face of the earth <laughs> fantastic um, if you want to get uh, see more of Jennifer you should go to her own site as well which is uh, com. Uh, just from me before I go to Joe for his final thought um, you should uh, check out a little site which I may have mentioned about 500 times on this podcast uh, Cranky Gamers UK because I've just recorded the show with Dits for his chartcast it should be chartcast number 5 so that'll probably go on sometime next week uh, I don't know how good it's going to turn out because we did waffle on like two grumpy old men for about three hours about how <laughs> gaming's changed and da 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 da, da. so uh, <laughs> uh, geezers yeah <laughs> it was very much two old geezers um, and next week we're on this show we're doing an indie special uh, so that's a cut mode between me and Joe so check that out so Joe your final thought for this week just a shameless plug, uh, me and Sinan wrote an article called The Top 14 Most Embarrassing Video Game Movie Moments of All Time this past <laughs> week. It was a lot of hard work, late nights, uh, but we got it in. Um, so if you want to go to thegamereviews.com and check that out, that'd be great. Yeah, that was a, a good slog, but it was worth it in the end, just about. <laughs> um, okay, I guess I'll end on my final thought, which is uh, if you go to Kotaku and you look for the Concerto Street Fighter shirt, just know that I'm wearing it and it's amazingly cool. So uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, this has been Big Red Potion, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Big Red Potion, brought to you as part of the Game On Network of podcasts from thegamereviews.com, home to unbiased thoughts from a community of gamers. You can find more about the podcast at bigredpotion.com, with links to previous shows and forum threads where you can continue the discussion. You can follow show updates through Twitter by following either myself at twitter.com slash shoinan, S-H-O-I-N-A-N, or Joe at twitter.com slash slam vanderhuge, slam, V-A-N-D-E-R, huge. All that's left to do is thank the man behind the theme tune, Derek K. Miller. Derek, take us out, washing off like an aardvark.